Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... Adam. Alex. And I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be talking about Disciples of the Apostles, or better known as the Apostolic Fathers. Exciting. So today's episode's just going to be all through that first... What would you call it, Father Daryl? I would define, and I say I not being like it's my own authority, but it's pretty well established that the Apostolic Fathers are contemporary to the writings of the New Testament up until the latter part of the second century. So the last person often considered to be the last apostolic father was St. Irenaeus, and he was the bishop of Lyon, L-Y-O-N, or Lyon, in southern France. And he's writing around 180 to no later than 200. So are you saying that there's people in history between Acts and the modern age? Yes. Wow. (laughs) That's a shock. It's a shock for a lot of people to realize that the Bible did not fall out of the sky. Really, that the Bible wasn't written in heaven and then handed as a book already written to someone. That's not how the Lord gave it to us. And so these apostolic fathers just so happened to be, as you said, Caleb, the disciples of the apostles. Yeah, I think there's a lot of disconnect. When it comes to the fact of, like, people understand there's some history when it comes to Rome and then, of course, Israel and the early church in that area. They kind of have that idea of, like, yeah, that's there. But then they make that quick jump to nowadays where they just have the Bible and they just, from where the Bible stopped, they kind of don't see that continuation that goes on. There's usually a quick stop at Azusa Street there, too. So you don't forget that one. You can't skip over that. If you're Pentecostal. Early 1900s. Yeah, if if you're a Methodist, you go back to Wesley. If you're of one of the particularly distinct Reformed traditions, you're going to go back to the middle of the 1500s. It's it's interesting where people want to pick and kind of stop and choose where they want to start and stop. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's something that you have to see all the way through. Because we talked about even last week when we look at authority and where it comes from. When you want to go back to that source, the phrase that we used was ad fonte. You have to go back to the source. And in order to see where you are now, you have to see where it comes from. And that involves you going through that history. So I think today we're just going to be talking about a few of the different apostolic fathers and hopefully might get into a little bit of the Didache. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, Didache. Uh, and ad fontes. You have, you have the, the pronunciation of the S by, by some there, but you're very good. That's very good. All right. It's like, is it agape or agape? <laughs> Ecclesia or ecclesia? Tomato or... Tomato. Yeah. No one says tomato. <laughs> no, it's potato. No one says that either. <laughs> so, Adam, I think you had something you wanted to bring up, too. Yeah, so um, a lot of times, especially when talking about liturgy that I, I have with mainly other mainline evangelicals who don't really have a lot of liturgy or anything like that in their worshiper that they recognize as liturgy, even though they do. They talk about the gap in between when the fathers that a lot of us draw from, like especially this group of particular fathers that we're talking about, that there was such a large gap of time, and they they talk about, well, think about how much has happened in the last 100, last 50, last 25 years, and how much culturally could have changed during that, and how much the church could have changed. How do we actually know that these men were drawing from the apostles, or that it is congruent with, you know, what the uh, apostles were doing, or what they were teaching at the time? Yeah, so I think if you want to take that that argument in of itself and kind of present it back to the person, you could you could legitimately ask them why do they trust the Bible anyway? 
because scholars, there are some Bible scholars who will date the writings of the Gospels to the last part of the first century and that they weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's names aren't on those Gospels. Those names come from the tradition of the church, specifically these apostolic fathers. So why go back, as you're saying, to the apostolic fathers? Is, are they even trustworthy? Well, some of them are mentioned in the letters of the New Testament. All of them refer to the books that we now call the New Testament, either by the names that tradition has given them, they call them Scripture, or they, and they also call them the New Testament, as you get later on into the, the latter part of the second century, recognizing that these were the letters and the writings that they had received from the apostles that they read while they celebrated the Eucharist. So you'd have the Old Testament reading, you'd have the singing of a psalm, and then you'd have something from the memoirs of the apostles, as Justin Martyr writes in, uh, I believe it's Book 1, Chapter 65, thereabouts. And he's writing in Rome, Caleb, we mentioned Rome, right around 150 A.D. So we can go back and we not only find a handful of writings, we find quite a bit. And we see that the doctrine of Christ, the celebration of the Eucharist, the sacrament of baptism, the ordained ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon is thoroughly established by the end of the first century. Well, maybe we'll talk about Ignatius in a few, a few minutes, but Ignatius of Antioch, he is not mentioned by name in the New Testament. But the fathers have long said that he is one of the children that Jesus picks up and blesses. And so when he introduces himself in seven letters that he writes when he's arrested in Antioch and then paraded around the eastern part of the empire to be, to be martyred in Rome, he identifies himself with a name that does seem to indicate that he was maybe that little boy that would have been blessed by Christ. That's crazy when you think about that, that connection. That's pretty sweet. Ignatius of Antioch is the third bishop of Antioch. The first was Simon Peter. Now, we don't have anything in the book of Acts that says that Peter was the first bishop of Antioch. So why does the church teach that? Well, he's there in Galatians. And the apostle Peter, this is where our, our lack of hierarchy, our lack of authority hurts us as contemporary readers. We read that Peter went someplace and we think he just popped in and, and waved his hand and said, hey guys, nice to see you. That's, <laughs> that's really not possible. Think about a, a general showing up to troops. Does he just show up for a visit and not carry the authority that he has? It just doesn't happen. When Simon Peter shows up in Antioch and Galatians, he's not undermining or undercutting what was there in the book of Acts that we get a lot of details about in Acts 11 and Acts 13. He's actually there reinforcing and strengthening what's going on, even though he does get rebuked by Paul. But according, I mean, the tradition <laughs> says that, you know, Peter is first, Evodius is second, and Ignatius is third. And Ignatius is consecrated the Bishop of Antioch in A.D. 67, before the Romans overthrow the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Before certain portions of the books of the New Testament are even written, this guy's made the bishop. And he's the bishop there for 40 years. 40 years. And so we have very, very good assurances that when he is writing his seven letters to the seven churches, and he writes one to Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna, and Smyrna is one of the seven churches of Revelation. 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 And so if John wrote the Revelation in the latter part of the first century, it's also very probable that the angel of the church of Smyrna is Polycarp. Because Polycarp is the bishop in Smyrna for decades before he's martyred in around 156 
somewhere between 156 and 165. So point being, Ignatius writes his letters, and he is as clear as can be about things today that so many say, oh, the Bible doesn't teach that. Is it probable that he's the one that got it wrong learning from the apostles themselves and probably having been blessed by Jesus as a kid or us with our contemporary ideologies? So this is one of the really good reasons we go back and we read these church fathers, because if it hadn't been for those church fathers, we wouldn't have a New Testament. Because not only did they preserve the writings themselves, the actual material writings, they also preserved what they meant. One of the key emphases, key distinctives of the Reformation in England, and we see this in Richard Hooker, who was an excellent theologian, basically says, to sum up his thought, yes, the Scripture is the infallible authority, and we learn what it means from the feet of the fathers. Kind of what I hear you saying kind of in response to my question is that there wasn't much of a gap there at all. There's actually a lot of overlap between these fathers and the apostles. No gap at all. No gap at all. So there's a little bit of debate here, but in Philippians, Paul mentions Clement, mentions a man named Clement. Well, church tradition has said that the Clement that Paul is mentioning happens to be the Clement of Rome, who wrote a letter to the church of Corinth in about A.D. 96. And Clement was the third bishop of Rome. So while Peter and Paul are in Rome, and they're martyred in the mid-60s, A.D., around Nero's, the fire with Nero, the tradition says that Simon Peter consecrated three men to succeed one another, and it went Linus, Cletus, or Anacletus, and then Clement. So Clement, according to Papias, who's another church father writing in the early 100s, Papias says that Clement still had the voice of the apostles ringing in his ears when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians. And he writes his letter to the Corinthians because a new group of leaders had arisen, and they kicked out the people that had been established as the the leaders of the church by the apostles, and Clement rebukes them. It's ironic that we have Clement's first letter and Ignatius' seven letters. They're all content, those eight letters, if you will, nine if you count. Ignatius' letter to Polycarp. Uh, But we see them writing about church authority. It's a big deal. Because who is the representative of Christ in his church? These are the guys that really start to codify what Irenaeus, the last church father, definitively articulates and summarizes as the apostolic succession, meaning not just the collection of texts, but the manual transmission of authority through the laying on of hands, which goes all the way back to Genesis, when they're laying their hands to bless and to appoint into authoritative positions, and the teaching and the preaching of the gospel and celebration of the sacraments. So, no, there's there's no gap at all. There's no gap. So, with the apostolic fathers, these, what we call fathers, they were all somebody in a position of authority, correct? For the most part? Yeah, we could say for the most part they were all bishops or persons of significant influence, like the shepherd of Hermas. Mm-hmm. The man's name is Hermas, yeah. and he's a prophet in Rome. He mentions Clement. Shepherd means the angel. So the shepherd of Hermas is his angel. It's named after his angel who appears to him and gives him all these lengthy discourses about righteousness and repentance, uh, even the imagery of the church as a tower that's being built and rough-hewed stones that are shaped into that tower. All that's coming from Hermas's vision. In the church in Rome, For a long time, I want to say up until the mid-200s, both the shepherd of Hermas and Clement were read as New Testament scripture. 
their readings were alongside the readings of the Twelve Apostles for the New Testament. And one of the reasons the early church said that their, their writings were not canonical, they shouldn't be considered canon, meaning rule for the universal church, was because they were particular to Rome. They were, if you want to use the word, contextual. If it's genuinely contextual, it's not Catholic. Right. And so the canons for the church, properly understood, historically defined, must be Catholic if they're going to be things. Now, we can have our local canons, right? So we can have that. But the, the actual rule, the actual authority for the church needs to be first the infallible scripture, and then we can look at these lesser authorities. And the church fathers happen to be these guys that most of them, yes, are bishops. But you have others like Hermas who wasn't, but he was recognized as a prophet for a long time. Okay. Another writing that is really important is the Didache. You mentioned that, Caleb. Yeah. From what I understand, the Didache is just, I've seen people call it, they say it's like the teaching of the 12 apostles, like from their understanding, though. Yeah, as if the apostles wrote it themselves. Some scholars think that the Didache is really the full text version of the letter that was drafted in Jerusalem in Acts 15. What Luke preserves for us is like a small snippet, like a synopsis of what the actual full letter was, would have been to Didache. Scholars date it to either like the middle of the first century, like 70 AD maybe, up to the middle of the second, around 130. I kind of go with an early date because he's talking about, when you read it, it reads like a manual that goes before the organization. Like the church is growing, Think about today in parts of the world where the church is growing so fast they can't get enough clergy out there to oversee it, to pastor it. But you need, to, you need some kind of manual. And so the Didache reads something like that, and which is why they would have called it the teaching of the Twelve. Because here's the basic kerygma, the basic proclamation of the apostles. Here's their basic practices. So they, it tells us how to baptize. You baptize in living water or water that's moving, you know, fully immersion. If you can't do that, then you can use stagnant water. And if you can't find enough water to immerse in, then you can sprinkle. Uh, it gives us prayers for the Eucharist. Pray this way. Pray this prayer when you celebrate the Eucharist. Unless you're a prophet, then you can give thanks as the Spirit moves you. And then there's a couple other phrases in there that kind of indicate a very strong Jewish core with it that you don't see as the church gets further and further out into more Gentile venues. So I tend to think that it was written probably before the fall of Jerusalem, before the apostles had even disappeared because it talks about itinerant apostles and itinerant prophets. If they ask you for money, they're false. If they stay for more than three days, they're false. So it identifies these particular traveling ministers, because talking about the way the world has changed. In the early church, and this, it was like this for over a millennia, if there was a church in town, that was the church in town. There wasn't a second one. So it's not like you had a groups of other independent ministers or other ministers from other dioceses coming in and starting new churches next door. It just didn't go that way. There was, if there was a church, it was the church. So yeah, basically the DDK is that where it's like we were talking about last week when it comes to authority, or as in like you're even pointing out just now that scripture is infallible authority. And that's without question. Then there's also those different types of authorities especially things like baptism and Eucharist. Like, what does it actually say? And like, where are we getting these ideas? Mm-hmm. And they're coming from, and it's just having that interpretation. Yeah, exactly. And this is why the DDK is so helpful. Because if you go and you read the bare bones of the New Testament, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, if you read it as just bare history, ah, historical, it just fell out of the sky. 
then you don't have any form. You can start piecing things together from the New Testament like itself without consideration to history. But then to do that, you've got to look at history to figure out what they're talking about. So the DDK tells us that before the writings of the New Testament were circulated amongst the churches, this particular manual was being circulated amongst the churches on how to live the Christian life. And something that Augustine will say much later, and he's not an apostolic father, even though he's a church father, Augustine will say that if you see a practice observed by the entire church and no specific command for it in Scripture, it has to have apostolic origins or it wouldn't be maintained because there was significant diversity amongst the early Christians too. The irony is that the diversity that they had is not the diversity that we're permitting. The diversity that we permit are the violation of long-standing Christian traditions that have been around for millennia in place of what we believe is the Holy Spirit, which is really just the spirit of the age. So with thinking about that, you know, I've, I've studied a little bit about the Church Fathers and just reading the different ones, and what I've noticed is that a lot of the teachings come from shoring up of what the doctrine of the Church is. You talked about Justin Martyr. He, he was writing against Trypho, who was a Jew, and he was writing against some of his stuff. And we get a lot of other teaching just clarifying what the doctrine of the Church is that are against some kind of heresy, you know? Is that kind of what the Apostolic Fathers were doing, too? Or was that kind of just, they were just teaching just to make sure that we understood what the Scriptures really meant? Both. Okay. So in the same way that the New Testament is the product of challenges within the churches, we see this to continue to be the case as we move out through Christian history. So good theology is the faith once for all delivered, applied to the world that we live in. So when you're seeing with the Apostolic Fathers is the disciples of the Apostles contending with arguments that the Apostles didn't encounter. Okay. So when the disciples of the Apostles encounter these bad ideas, whether they're in the church or outside the church, what do they do? They appeal to the Scripture canonically, Genesis to Revelation, and then they apply the plain teaching of Scripture with what they learned oral tradition, what they learned from the teaching of, of their bishops, you know, the apostles themselves, and they said, here's the truth. And they'll talk about it. Like Ignatius mentions Peter and Paul. Clement, they, he mentions Peter and Paul. They talk about them because they knew them. Papias tells us a lot of history. He's writing, I think I mentioned him a minute ago, but he's writing in the early 100s, late, late first century, maybe in the 90s. He says that Mark's gospel comes from Peter. Peter's preaching in Rome. He tells us that Matthew wrote in Hebrew before he wrote into Greek. And a lot of modern scholars actually dismiss that. But you know, what's stunning is that church tradition tells us hundreds of years later that when Jerome translates the Bible into Latin, he is given a Hebrew copy of Matthew along with a Greek copy, and that the Hebrew copy was the one that Matthew wrote when he translates it into Latin. Now, we can talk about modern higher critical linguistic scholarship, and, and there's a place for that. I'm not dismissing it. But we've jumped on the bandwagon of that so much that we've dismissed these traditions that have come down to us with the church. When you look at the fathers and how they're coming back and they're reapplying truth, you see not the innovation or the creation of new doctrine, but a further articulation, a further clarification of what they received from their predecessors. So, and, and that practice of the fathers is good theology. How do we know that we're living in accordance with the truth? Well, one, we're not negating the past. We don't reject it. We acknowledge it. We don't consider it infallible, but we do consider it authoritative. 
Because if the Holy Spirit inspired the books of Scripture and the Holy Spirit inspired the church in her discernment of those books because she also had maintained the teaching, is he not also then going to preserve and conserve the doctrine of the church when she speaks with one voice about a topic? Here's the thing. If he doesn't, then we can't trust what we're learning today. The Reformation, they wrestled through these issues. You know, they wanted to get rid of the book of James, or they wanted to get rid of, you know, however they wanted to do it. And you see in the beauty of the Anglican formularies in the 39 articles, this practice. 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, and how many other books? Is it 11 for the good old Apocrypha? Oh, well, you got the Apocrypha right. There's our study question for the week. How many books are in the Deuterocanon? And Deuterocanonical books or Apocrypha, either term is viable. But the reason I bring it up is because the early fathers disagreed. Augustine believed that the Apocrypha, as we call it, was divinely inspired. Jerome did not, at least not until the end of his life. So what is the Anglican practice? We will preserve all of them and rightly acknowledge some to be infallible authorities and others to be authorities. And there's no, dis- there's no discrepancy there that is reasonable and it honors the tradition that the Holy Spirit created. Yeah, because I even think bringing up the Apocrypha is a good point to kind of say where even within the last, I think you said like within the last like 120 years, whenever you would have the Bible, the Apocrypha is there with it. Yeah. Like it wasn't until recently that it's actually started to get kicked off. You know, you can buy Bibles that have the Apocrypha in them. Usually Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Methodist Bibles are doing that now. You can see that collection of books and it's good. I would recommend that if you don't have a Bible that has them, either you get one, the Revised Standard has done it, and the ESV has done it, but they're a little harder to find. Again, any of the Catholic or Orthodox Bibles are going to have them. The Orthodox Bibles will have a couple extra portions usually added along that the Greeks have retained that the, the Latin Church didn't. And so, but I'm going to recommend, if, no one, if, you, if, if you guys or anyone listening to us has not read the Apocrypha, read it. You're going to learn a whole lot about the worldview of the Jews that existed just before and a little bit of overlap to early part, the early part of the New Testament. I mean, uh, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Ben Sirah, Tobit, Judith, Bell and the Dragon, uh, Susanna. I mean, there is so much in there. The Maccabees. I mean, Jesus is celebrating the Festival of Lights, which if you were just to read Genesis to Malachi, you wouldn't know where that's coming from. It's coming from the Maccabee, the Maccabee period. So there's tons of valuable material in there. Jesus' debate with the Pharisees over unclean food isn't just about the law of Moses. It's also about the seven sons who are tortured to death by Antiochus IV Epiphanes because they won't eat pork. That's in, it's in the Maccabees. It's macabre. I mean, you, you want to think you watch a TV or a movie that's gory. You've not, wait till you read uh, some of the stories in the Maccabees. And then I would also say the church fathers. You can buy a collection from J.B. Lightfoot that's probably like 99 cents on Amazon. And then Michael Holmes did an updated translation probably 20 years ago on the Apostolic Fathers, which covers these guys that are contemporary to the apostles out to the third generation. He doesn't have Irenaeus's writings with him because that's a lot of material. But he does have the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, Ignatius's letters, Clement, Second Clement, Diognetus, uh, Fragments of Papias, Shepherd of Hermas. For me, 
reading, when I was first being familiarized with Anglicanism, liturgy, all these different subjects, we're talking about sacraments, different ideas within that, and even talking about the establishment of uh, bishops, priests, and deacons, you start reading the fathers, and it changes your perspective because you see that these, a lot of these different concepts aren't something that they're arguing about because they just accept it's, it's fact. It is what it is. This is the reality, and you start looking at how they're thinking and how they're addressing these different subjects. I really do think that changes the way that you look at things. So if you look at the things like we're, like, you know, that we debate versus the things that we just accept as truth, and you, you have to see those things that they just accept as truth, as, mm-hmm. as, as reality and as the way things are. And I think it's definitely shaping. Uh, it'll shape your mindset in a way that you think about things. If you read uh, Clement's letter, First Clement, at right around chapter 40, all the way through chapter 44, 45, I think, he's talking about, and he goes back and keeps referring to events in the Law of Moses, okay? His whole letter is really a recap of, of salvation history, and then he turns it on the, on the Corinthians. But when you get to about chapter 40, he starts talking about, you mentioned the, the bishops and, and the orders in the church. He says uh, something to the effect that the apostles, through perfect foreknowledge, knew that there was going to be contentious with contention with the office of oversight, episcopacy, with the bishops. So they, through the Spirit, tested and appointed their successors. So he clearly says they knew there was going to be an argument. The Lord told them, so they appointed, they created bishops, priests, and deacons. So to go back to what you mentioned last week, Alex, from the ordinal, the ordinal just says it's clear to anyone who wants to read. <laughs> right. this, is, this is what the church has always done. Why do you even entertain the notion that you can change it? Right. One of the, the things that I've discovered as I was, I'm going on this journey, and I really started reading the Church Fathers when I came part of the, this historic church here, and I had people say, like, well, why do you need to read? The Holy Spirit will teach you. I've heard that a lot. And one of my first thoughts are, well, I, I read a commentary, or I'll Google something, and that could be, I can, I can write anything I want on the internet, right? And we've, we've seen that. Wikipedia. You right? So it's, it's, <laughs> I, I've heard that, and they, they said, well, I just need the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells me the Holy Spirit will teach me and be my guide. Are you talking about you just need chills up your back and a sense of aha in your mind? Sure. Okay. So like, what would your response to that be? I mean, I know we kind of, that's kind of what we're talking about, but... Yeah, let's take the premise at face value. Okay. Let's say that it's true, that all I need is the Holy Spirit. Well, does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? No. Absolutely not. So who is it probable that the Holy Spirit was upon the disciples of the apostles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If we take the book of Acts at face value, we know that the disciples of the apostles were baptized, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and regularly attended the Eucharist. Right. Right? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. All right. So we see this through the books of the New Testament. So let's just grant that premise for a second. If the Holy Spirit is truly all that you need to understand the Bible, and he doesn't lie, and he doesn't contradict himself, then you have the assurance that when you're reading them, and you're not in agreement with them, you are probably not hearing the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So what you're saying is we don't want to go down that, that trail right there. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing right now. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a very significant observation and we have to be mindful of it. Because if there's anything that we prize as modern and postmodern, even people, is innovation and update because we think it makes something better. Well, if we're talking about rocket engines and uh, antibacterial medicines, yes. 
But if we're talking about the truth of God who doesn't change, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, what we want is that faith once for all given, appropriated and applied to our context, making our context conformable to God's mind, not changing the Scripture to fit where we are. And the Apostolic Fathers is not one group of people. It's not even a singular decade. We're talking roughly a 100-year window, 125-year window across the continents, North Africa, Palestine, Asia Minor, around Turkey, parts, other, northern parts of the Mediterranean, into Rome, and further out to the west. This is what we're talking about. After the Apostolic Fathers, it gets even bigger. We start talking about what are called the anti, A-N-T-E, anti-Nicaea, anti-Nicene Fathers. So the, the men, the bishops that are writing, and there are women here too, but I mean, most of the people doing the writing and the teaching, obviously, the authoritative teaching, I should say, are the bishops and certain monks, because monasticism starts to really develop in the later part of the 200s because of the, the early church, in the early church with the fathers. But you get that anti-Nicene period that's basically 200 to 325, and then you go from 325 out to different periods, hundreds of years later, based upon the East and the West. So there's a whole classification of church fathers here. The apostolic fathers are those who had immediate contact with the, with the apostles themselves or immediate contact with those discipled. So Irenaeus didn't know the apostles, but he knew Polycarp, who knew Ignatius and was, and was discipled by John. So I think they would probably know best of what they just taught. You know, sitting, sitting underneath your teaching, obviously, like, I hear what you teach every week. Well, at least I try to. No, I'm, just, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but I, I hear what you teach every week. So, like, I have, I ha- and it, we talk about this all the time. So, like, I feel like I have a good understanding, a good grasp on your, your views and your beliefs and stuff. So, taking it back there, like, as people that have been, you know, against me with this stuff, you know, the disciples in, in Acts and in the New Testament— were the authority, you know, I'm using my quotes, my air quotes, they were the authority that we have to believe, obviously coming from Jesus, but the authority that we have to believe in and everything. But their disciples, like you said, it was still ringing in their ears as they're writing. So I think that's safe because I don't think it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit is on me more than one, one of them, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, that's, right. Kind of that, that's kind of the understanding. That's kind of where we head when we walk down that path. Well, don't you know that I, I, you know, oh, I should stop. That'll, <laughs> that'll get too much. <laughs> yeah, it is a challenge. We, we want to be uh, humble and learn from the church. And I think even overall, whenever I go and I read scripture, three things that you mainly want to do, and it's like even basic hermeneutics, is just have that historical context. And of course, understand scripture doesn't disagree with itself. Then also listen to the Holy Spirit. But Sometimes people might try to do one over the other, but there are things that have to be done in unison. So especially looking back to the Apostolic Fathers, that's where you're getting a lot of your historical context so you can actually understand what's happening and what the Scripture is truly saying. And then you can receive that confirmation by the Holy Spirit by also looking to the Scripture again and seeing where it agrees with itself because it doesn't contradict itself. Right. The Holy Spirit doesn't. We see that the even Paul and the writers in the New Testament, they appeal and directly quote the Old Testament scriptures as from the Holy Spirit, and they directly quote Jesus. And they synthesize and present an answer for all of the churches in their letters. When you step out to the generation after them, they're doing the same thing. And it's the people who are the heretics and the schismatics who are claiming to be doing that, but then don't 
They introduce new things. They change what's been established. They alter it. So that jump forward into the, one of the post-Nicene fathers was Basil or Basil the Great. And he was living in the latter part of the 300s. He was a bishop in Caesarea. And he wrote extensively about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And he always refers and appeals to the fathers, the fathers, the fathers. He's a father to us. But he's talking about the people that existed before him and that authoritative body of teaching that they had articulated because of the challenges they had to say, this is what God teaches us through the Scripture with the the consensus of the church. We would be crazy to deviate from that standard of practice, but that, in our American sense of freedom, is what what we do. And I, I think it's interesting that you talk about that. One of our fathers talking about the fathers before him as his fathers, and really talking about his job. So if you look at us in our position in history, you know, Lord willing, there's stuff after us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's stuff before us. There's fathers before us. And there's going to be people after us. And our job is, is a gap in between them. We start talking about bringing this literature, not just obviously scripture, but the traditions forward to those so that they too can have it. I think if you look at even the last like, you know, 50, 60 years, even like people translating and digitizing a lot of these texts, they've done a great service to us because now we can read them. I mean, you can, you can take what would take two bookshelves full <laughs> and now you can hold it in a, a Kindle and, and look at yeah. it in your hands. And so yeah. just like the duty that the people before us have done, and it is our job to just not have these texts, but to know them and pass this on so that when we're talking about these new, I use once again, using these air quotes, new ideas, uh, no, these aren't new ideas. Uh, the fathers have already dealt with that. That's uh, what we call uh, heresy. So we can, we can kind of <laughs> smack some stuff down. And I think that's, that's important, and that's our job as placeholders mm-hmm. uh, in our time and in our context and where we're at to just hand us to the next because that's what makes us who we are and what we believe. Let me give you an example. In the letters of Ignatius, he talks about those that avoid the Eucharist. They won't celebrate the Eucharist. And the reason they won't celebrate the Eucharist, because Ignatius says the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Christ, the medicine of immortality, he says, they will not celebrate it because they don't believe the Word became flesh. They think the Word only appeared to become flesh. Docetism, and it's a form of Gnosticism, that it's only the spiritual world that matters, not the material world. Look at contemporary American church practice amongst many denominations and independent churches. They do not celebrate the Eucharist because my salvation is spiritual. Those groups, without knowing anything about the early Gnostics or the ancient Docetists, have fallen into the error because they've deviated from the praxis, the apostolic practice that's both clearly in the New Testament, but then doggedly hammered by the fathers, by the disciples of the apostles, because if you deviate from these practices, you're going to fall into theological error and possibly impale yourself on that sword and not make it into the kingdom. And, and, and I can hear right now, I can hear somebody saying, Daryl, that's too far, that's too far, you can't say that. Well, hold on, my friends. In the book of Numbers, we just looked at it in our Sunday school last week, mm-hmm. who was with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram when the earth opens to eat them? His swallow them. whole family. Children, little ones, and women. They're all with them. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, who's the bishop in Ephesus at the time, keep guard, take heed, pay attention to your life and to your doctrine. In so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And the fathers heard Paul tell Timothy that. They heard Timothy tell them that. And they in turn tell us that. 
here's kind of a, a piggyback off. This is more kind of a, a subjective kind of your opinion. So for pretty much all of us here sitting at this table, none of us came from a, a liturgical or historical church really background. Uh, you might have seen some some people quoting, uh, I don't know, maybe some Wesley, you know, here and there just because of the heavy uh, you know, uh, Methodist roots in our organization that we were part of. But we really didn't go back to the fathers much. I mean, that really wasn't something that was emphasized. And so coming into uh, a more liturgical, historical church background, I see a lot more people focusing on that. Do you think that the knowledge of your average person, or your average conger- like person in your congregation, is familiar with those more than than really your average person sitting in your pew at like a mainstream evangelical who's not focused on those things? In like our, our congregation, I would say, yeah, because we, we talk about it. I, I put quotes from the fathers in every Sunday handout to show that the message of uh, what I'm preaching and teaching isn't mine. I'm merely a steward, a link in the chain. And so my responsibility and the responsibility of the church is to keep saying what she's been saying and not to change what she's saying. We like that innovative thing. We like the new thing. And the new thing is Jesus. He's always the new thing, not, not something else. So we, we preserve and we maintain and we teach and we advocate. I tell you what, a lot of the problems that people have had coming out of, coming out of a liturgical background, an actual historic tradition, especially in the past 100 years, 120 years, is that the people in those traditions, one, didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. They only thought they were celebrating bare ritual. Well, that's because no one instructed them. Or they were in those scenarios, and this is still the case today, they're taught something contrary to the gospel. So maybe they've maintained the form for baptism and Eucharist. Maybe they retained the later church developments, you know, coming out of the Western Empire with the way that they dress and the way they, they genuflect or kneel at the altar, the table, but they don't preach the content of the gospel. They've deviated somewhere else. And our responsibility is to hold all of these things together, to walk them out together. And when we do that, we'll rightly celebrate and be what the Lord has called us into being. Well, I think we definitely covered a lot of stuff today. We're kind of starting to run out of time. I, I do want to give a, a, a shout out to Thomas Oden. He was a Methodist minister who's gone to be with the Lord. But Thomas Oden, back in the mid-20th century, was becoming part of a progressive wing within Methodism and was finding it to be bankrupt. And I'm not, I don't remember all the details right now offhand, but Thomas Oden, just, he, he came across the robust theology of the fathers in their orthodox practice. And Odin dedicated the remainder of his career, large portions of it, into uncovering these writings from the fathers. And Odin has been, his, his, the organization that he put together has digitized so much material that 200 years ago wasn't even possible to get to people. And so the amount of resources that are going to continue to be coming out about the, the, the beliefs and practices of the early church is a treasure trove that I would recommend to anybody and everybody who can get their hands on that material. You mentioned Wesley. It was the practice of John Wesley to read from the church fathers as part of his daily devotions every day. Caleb, how many times did John Wesley celebrate the Eucharist in a week? Seven. Five. Okay. You're close. (laughs) Almost every single day, he had morning prayer, evening prayer, and the celebration of the Eucharist. We want revival because people are like, I want to feel enthusiasm. And God wants you to have revival so you can become more fully obedient 
and not just obedience because it's ritual and because it's rote, but because obedience is life-giving. Amen. Well, I think that's all we have time for today, but thank you for everybody for tuning in. And next week we'll be talking about the, what is it, Father Daryl? The anti-Nicene Church Fathers. So from about 200, that would be people like Tertullian, Hippolytus of Rome, up until 325 with the Council of Nicaea. And hopefully you'll be able to listen to us talk about that. Again, thanks you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to us. Uh, again, my name's Caleb. I'm Adam. I'm Alex. And I'm Father Daryl. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace.